Well, good evening, everyone. Woo, that's a little hot. Is that about right? All right. <laughs> down, down, down. There we go. There we go. It is uh, good to see everybody this evening. Steve Brooks, Kurt Borden, welcome to Bible study as we continue our journey through uh, the book of Colossians. Um, today is the uh, 96th day of the year. We're moving right along. And uh, so, uh, as you know, is my practice to read a psalm a day. Um, psalm 96 is, six is just really good. So I thought we would open with that. So uh, just notice the uh, as we pray through this, just notice the reference to the new, uh, especially in connection to our sermon series that we have been uh, uh, talking through all the ways that God has been, been preparing uh, us for Easter all along. So to give us this opportunity for this new this new life, right? So here we go. Psalm 96. Let's pray. Sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord. Praise his name. Proclaim his salvation day after day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous deeds among all people. For great is the Lord. And most worthy of praise. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the nations are idols. But the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and glory are in his sanctuary. Ascribe to the Lord all you families of nations. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. The world is firmly established. It cannot be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Let the heavens rejoice. Let the earth be glad. Let the sea resound and all that is in it. Let the fields be jubilant and everything in them. Let all the trees of the forest sing for joy. Let all creation rejoice before the Lord, for he comes. He comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. And we pray these things in the name of Jesus. And everyone said, Amen, Amen indeed. We are working our way through the letter to the Colossians, and with all study of God's Word, there is a surface level that you can take that's probably good enough, and then there is the disciple route you can take that gets much deeper and can raise a lot of questions, but at the end of the day, I think is far more worthwhile. And a huge stretch for that is always context. Anytime you read scripture or someone's trying to convince you and it's half a scripture and it's just that scripture, I would be very suspect. Some of the worst things Christians have done to ourselves, and I'm going to probably step on toes, but are the little devotional manuals. You know, where we get these little things and they'll give us a scripture. And you tend to read those like it's written just for you. And it's just like people like you. The scripture is never just written for you. Scripture was tied to a specific place and time. And if you don't know that, you're probably filling in many of those details with assumptions that are not true. And that's very dangerous. You have to have the context of what you're doing. Now again, you can stay surface or you can become a disciple and go deeper. One of the things that we're really going to have to wrestle our way through is what Christianity was like 30, 50 years, 100 even, after Jesus left. One of the big mistakes that you'll make about understanding Christianity in the first century is thinking it's just like church today. 
that they came to church on Sunday, they opened up the hymnal, and they heard a good sermon, and, and all those kind of things. The church was very much working out what it understood. And they're doing it in the middle of a war. So imagine building a church right now in the Ukraine. There's no time really to, to meet and try to understand. It, it's very, very hard. And the church does it. God's presence is overwhelming, but it's very, very hard. We've talked about it, but 66 AD should always be burned in your mind. It's the first of a series of revolts, there will be three, in which the Jewish nation tries to free itself from Rome. And they get worse and worse and worse. The last one's about 137 uh, AD. And it's, there was another Messiah that came um, he said he was a messiah, and it, it was just a bloodbath. So all this is going on, these wars, this struggle, this east and west, uh, you know, is, is Rome right? Is Rome going to rule over everybody? And then you have this, like, Jewish cult that comes out and says, uh, we had a deliverer, a messiah, and he has proclaimed this kingdom, and it will deliver the whole world. And the average person living that day said, you're crazy. You're absolutely crazy. What good could come from Afghanistan right now? I mean, would you, would you accept medical advice from a doctor from Afghanistan? Or would you go to a church from a... Maybe I would go to a church from a pastor from Afghanistan. But that's the kind of way they felt about Judah. <laughs> Judah's a dustbin. They're, they're crazy people. They just fight over there. They always fight. How can you be a talk about a religion of peace? So there is this huge struggle between what was presented as the Gospels and then the Old Testament and then what people were trying to make sense of it. Why I tend to get down on devotional stuff is because of that tendency to fill in extra details from ourselves. And this is exactly what almost destroyed the church in its first century. The presence of Greek thought inside Christianity really began to morph it. And we got in a bind in that many of the first generation of, well, you know what happened to them, the people that Jesus left in charge. What happens to them? They get killed in mass. The only exception is John, who does write a lot for us. They are being killed right and left. What did Jesus tell them to write down? He said, whatever you do, make sure you get my stories written down. Right? He never said anything like that at all. What did he tell them to do? Go and make disciples. Train the next generation with what I have taught you to do so that they can train the next generation. It's the old rabbinic process. Jesus never said, finish the Bible for me. There was never an intent to write more of the Bible. They had God's word. They had the Torah. But what happened is these disciples kept getting killed, and the stories weren't passed on. And so out of desperation, not to try to write Scripture, out of desperation, they began to try to capture the stories of the disciples, or in some case, somebody that had knew the disciples. Who did Luke know when he wrote Luke and Acts? Do you remember we did that study? Did he actually know a disciple? One of the original? Nope, not at all. He kind of does it as a research project, trying to interview people that were still alive that remembered. Now, he knows Paul, and so you can make an argument he knows that disciple. But... He's more of an apostle than a disciple. Anyway, there was never an attempt to write more Bible. The Christians were backed into a corner with writing the Bible. There was a group, again, mixing Greek thought in an unhealthy way. I think it's okay to mix some Greek thought, but in a very unhealthy way um, that began to say, we need clear direction. We need one book that we can look at for churches. Because when churches were gathering, what they were doing is what 
they had been taught as Jews. They were reading the Old Testament, and then someone would give them interpretation. So just like a synagogue worship. So these early, and I'm going to use this term, Gnostic, uh, it's, it's a modern term that we use to describe a whole lot of early Christian movements. They're kind of clumped together. Um, we know about the Gnostics from some early church fathers who said they are the worst thing in the world. They're fellow Christians, but they're heretics. They're worse than Satan. They actually said they ate babies. Now, I don't know if that's true, but you can tell the church picnic went bad when somebody's screaming that you eat babies, okay? So this is the level of vitriol that's going on. But these early Gnostics said, we need a book, a Biblos, for ourselves. We don't need to use the Jewish one because we're not Jews and we hate those people. We all know the God of the Old Testament is mean and nasty, and we don't understand all the stuff that he said. It doesn't apply to us. Who cares? So what they did is they kept the Psalms, because everybody loves the Psalms. We can take them out of context. And you notice we always assume the Psalms talk about us, but who are they talking about? Not Jesus. Who, who are the Psalms written for? For who? Written by David, yeah. For who? By who? Who used them? Who do they belong to? The Jews. We assume we're Israel today. We assume, I mean, there, there's, this is what I mean. We, we fill in a lot of stuff. The Gnostics said, we don't need to do that. Cut all that stuff of the Old Testament that we don't like. They kept a little, a bit of it, some of the Proverbs, some of the Psalms. Then they took uh, the Gospels that they liked, and they created it as the first book. And they would give it to early churches and said, here, this is the Biblos, this is the Bible. And then the other Orthodox Christians would come along and say, don't do that. Don't, don't read their book. It's not right. You need to read the whole Old Testament and the Christians would say, are you nuts? I don't want to read that stuff. It's hard. God's mean. Don't you have a Bible for us? And it was at this point that the church started to try to come up with its own Bible. We didn't start out with some divine inspiration. We backed our way into it. And it was because of the danger of this Gnostic group. I'm giving an abbreviated version, but there was a man named Marcion that started the first Bible, and he was a Gnostic. I know I'm throwing a lot at you. I'm trying to get you riled up a little bit because when you get riled up, you think with me. So let me show you a tongue-in-cheek introduction to who these Gnostics were and just about killed us in the first century. So let's watch. Christianity was, for a lack of a better term, buck wild. Keep in mind, for a long time, Christians weren't ruling super powerful institutions. They were a small but growing Jewish cult thriving in the periphery of the Roman Empire. Its main leaders were the figures of the, quote, holy generation, which you might recognize as many of the more prominent disciples of the New Testament. <laughs> However, a lot of what we take for granted as Christianity, such as the Trinity, bodily resurrection, and even the books of the Bible were far from solidified. Is the Trinity in the Bible? So many early nope. church leaders were trying to figure out what was the right way to worship? What did this God with this new savior figure really want for humanity? What did Jesus' message mean? What did his story say about humanity? For a long time, there was a lot of opinions. The most recognizable would probably be the proto-Orthodox Church. Their leaders developed a lot of the theological work for what would become staples of modern Christianity. This is the group that eventually found its way into the power structure of the Roman Empire and was the theological root for Catholics, Orthodox Christians, and Protestants. Us, Unless basically. you are a Coptic Christian or Ethiopian Christian, more about them in this video, then your sect of Christianity probably traces its theological roots to this group. The Gnostics were different from Christians today. Their interpretation of Christianity was unrecognizable compared to traditions taken for granted in modern day. So let's chew on those differences for a bit, shall we? So I guess we should begin with what you would think is one of the most settled parts of Christian dogma. God. One, kind of three somehow, but definitely one, right? Well, let's pick this apart. 
Gnostics did believe in God, so they're still good in that sense. But they adopted little bits from some Greek philosophers like Plato with his sweet cave and Pythagorean cults with their like triangle worship thing to build a concept called the monad. Some groups go as far as to say the monad is a sort of unknowable, agendered, perfect being that definitely exists, but they didn't make the world. This is because, well, the Gnostics generally had two gods, or a sort of imperfect replica of God, so maybe like one and a half gods? Either way, the material world, people, the earth, and all that good stuff, wait, I mean bad stuff because Gnostics, was created by a different entity called the Demiurge. Now I kind of imply that he's considered evil, but like I said earlier, opinions are diverse. Opinions range from evil incarnate to imperfect and he's just trying the best he can, you guys. Both the Monad and the Demiurge, according to some Gnostics, have servants called Aeons and Archons. Often the Aeons traveled in pairs and depending on the Gnostic, Jesus or the Demiurge himself were one of these creatures. The Demiurge is the entity who made the Earth and us. He's the grumpy god of the Old Testament who drowns a planet, causes pain in childbirth, and yells at people for doing sex wrong. And this hits on a different, but in some ways weirdly familiar part of a Gnostic Christian tradition. They believe that the material world, with material bodies, is a trap. This ranges from the material world being an imperfect manifestation of reality we need to transcend, to us being physical cages made by the Demiurge to trap our spark of creation. When we die and shed this mortal coil, we are usually reunited with the monad, becoming part of them. So Gnostics were not too worried about ritual and hierarchy, as they were just products of this imperfect prison plane, and what counts is how you feel in your heart. The last and most that important sound familiar? thing to the Gnostics is probably evident from the Greek origins of their name. Gnostic has the root gnosis, meaning knowledge or wisdom. At the core of Gnosticism is all these beliefs I mentioned above were secret knowledge that they were trying to understand and uncover. They even believe the Demiurge freaking out about Eve eating Dem apples from the Tree of Knowledge was him hiding this revelation about humanity. Jesus, for example, was an entity, usually not even a human one, sent to give us, the prisoners, secret knowledge of the bigger universe. And what we saw were just shadows in the cave to make the connection with Plato again. Oh, by the way, before we continue, if you want to see a much that's better good. and more detailed breakdown of this theology, I got a lot of... I know that's a lot to take in. We're, we're jumping cultures. And we're trying to live in a Greek culture now and understand the church, when for the last little bit we've been in a Jewish culture that was very different. Does everybody understand Plato's cave, that, that reference? So do you want to explain Plato's cave? <laughs> you probably do it better than I can. Plato was a profound writer and really affected the way his people perceived the world. But Plato understood sort of the limits of human knowledge. So he imagines this scenario where people are raised in a cave. And we never go outside the cave. We never sort of seek knowledge. And what's happening is life is happening outside of the cave. And there's all this commotion, there's life. And sometimes there's a fire, you know, where people are having dinner, and it's casting shadows into the cave. So the people in the cave look at the shadows, perceive it, and think they have knowledge and understanding. But what they need to do, actually, is stand up and go outside into, quote, the real world and see what's going on. So it's this sort of perception that in the world, we are flawed. We don't perceive reality as it really is. We simply get shadows on the side of a cave. This is fundamental to Greek philosophy. That as you seek wisdom, as you seek knowledge and understanding, then you're gonna understand the function of nature, of reality, in a more basic way. It's one of the reasons they're looking for the logos. 
the Logos would be outside the cave. It would be the fire, the, the original source of that which is inspiring them. But inherent in this view is that everything we see is flawed, is messed up. And we sort of see that, right? Drive in Midland. Is that chaos or is it order? It's chaos. You know, go teach a kindergarten class. Is that chaos? I mean, incarnate, it is. The world around us is just flawed and broken. So I'm, I'm zipping through centuries of thought here, but, but you build on that. There's no way a perfect God could create a world like this. Right? There's too much pain. There's too much suffering. There's too much sickness. There's too many stupid people. How could a perfect God create something so imperfect? Says Greek thought. No human physical thing can be good. Not really. It's all going to rot. Everybody's going to die. Everybody's going to become bug food. There's no, nothing above that. So when these Greeks start to hear, no, 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 there is a God that lives in heaven and he created this beautiful world and he wants you to be part of it. They said, you people from the Middle East are just backwards and stupid. You don't have the benefit of the education, Western education, that we've had for centuries. You're cavemen looking at shadows on a wall. Let us explain this to you. There was, is a perfect God the monad, the logos, before anything else. And, of course, goodness wants to share itself. So this goodness shared its light. And it comes out in pairs, because this is the way the world works. There's always male and female. There's left and right. We have two eyes, two legs, two arms. There's two. So there's two projection from the monad, a male and female. That's Adam and Eve. Each time you make a copy of this, it gets worse. So like, when, remember the old mimeographs when you were kids? Your teachers would make mimeographs. They used to smell so good, didn't they? <laughs> but there would come a time when that test had been copied too many times, right? I can't tell the eight from an A. I mean, it's just it's too many times. Well, that's what happens, the Greek philosophy says. When God creates good, he creates these pairs, and they keep going down, and each one is a little less good than the one before it, just a little less, a little less, until you reach the demiurge. The demiurge is an imperfect copy of the monad, imperfect copy of God. This demiurge is the one that creates a physical world. The reason things are messed up as much as they are now is because the demiurge, when he created it, was messed up. That's why the Old Testament God is so mean. He wasn't a monad. He was a demiurge. Now, this sounds completely alien to you, right? I mean, you might as well be talking Martians on the moon. This is what the church fought and tried its best to eradicate this taking over of Christianity by Greek thought. But we still see it pop up when we say stuff like, all flesh is bad. Spirit is good. I just want to love Jesus in my heart. I don't want to follow all of those rules in the Old Testament. I don't like the Old Testament. That God's mean. God is just love. And whatever love is, we think that's a new phenomenon, or we think it came from the 60s. It did not. From out of the gate, the church was battling this. And Paul is writing this letter to Colossae to, in, in this case, warn them preemptively that this is coming. Questions? <laughs> that's a long intro. Because he's patient and long-suffering? Why, why do we put up with half of what we do from our kids? So, but just, I just want you to notice, as Pastor Kurt was explaining that, that even in that Gnostic, that Gnostic perspective, the theology is done from the bottom up. Right? It's God's fault. It, God can't do it, it. It's God's fault that the world is 
bad and evil and the physical world is bad because look what the demagogue or whatever you were talking about, look what he did. And so whenever we kind of get into that, that frame of reference, we've got to be really, really careful that we allow our theology always to be top down, right? And what, what is the, the God that made the heavens and the earth and everything in it? What does he say is true about himself? Remember, the big five. Compassion, gracious. There he is, Sherry. He's slow to anger. That's why he puts up with it. Abounding in love and faithful. That is who God is. Now, if we see something that seems to counteract that, the assumption that we make is something's wrong with me and the way I'm seeing things, not something being wrong with God. Right? Yep. And please understand how much the Bible has become an anchor for us. There are all these cultural storms, these popular fads that pull us in these directions. The only thing that kept the church from becoming full-born Gnostic was the Old Testament, that God's revelation happened at a time and place. He doesn't expect us all to become Jews, not in any stretch of the imagination, but he expects us to understand the story that he gave to the Jews. That's right. The real meaning, not just David killed Goliath, but the why did he say not eat pork? Why did he say rest on the Sabbath? Why did he say circumcise your kids? We, as followers of Christ, have a real responsibility. And that's what Paul was trying to teach the, the early church. So let's get into, again, Paul trying to explain to them who Jesus is. And we think it's the simplest thing in the world. He's God's son. But you understand, and that's, I just showed you the tip, tip of the iceberg of what these Gnostics thought. Do any of you remember the Gospel of Judas? I mean, it sounds like an oxymoron, right? Um, it's, it's been about 15 years, but National Geographic published it on its uh, front cover when it was discovered. We have found a great many writings of these Gnostics from the early periods. The things about the Gnostics, you have to be really careful, things of this world don't matter. So if you are teaching a spiritual truth and you need to wrap it in a lie, it's okay. Because it's a deeper spiritual truth. It's just the truth that matters. So what they do is they write these gospels. The gospel of Thomas we knew about famously. Um, I'll, I'll give it away. The, the gospel of Thomas ends with, and you should look this up on the internet, um, in order to go to heaven, all women must become men. Because in the order of creation, women are less than men. They're, the demiurge was worse when he made women. So that's what Jesus says in the closing of the Gospel of Thomas. Men, women must become men to go to heaven. Does that sound right? No. So then we have the Gospel of Judas, which is another one they discovered. And it turns out that Judas was the good guy. That all the rest of the Jews were bad because we know Jews are bad, don't we? There's a lot of anti-Semitism going on because of the war and because we're the chosen people now, not you. But Judas had the secret knowledge. Jesus whispered a secret to him. So again, if you want to read the Gospel of uh, Judas, I've got it in my office. In about 15 minutes of reading it, you will figure out this is not a gospel. This is a bunch of crazy that you just saw. So... You have the monad, this perfect spiritual being, several eons or emanations that produce the demiurge. Jesus is probably, you heard him say in the video, a projection of the demiurge, an eon, trying to give us secret knowledge. That's what the apple was. And Steve will remember this. When we were in seminary, a group of United Methodists got together and they changed communion. It was too patriarchal to have blood and wine. How gross and terrible. So they celebrated communion with an apple and honey. Now, why would they do that? An apple is a sign of knowledge. That's what Eve was looking for at the tree. 
You see, she was a real Gnostic. She wanted the secret knowledge that the Demiurge had not given her. So now these women were going to eat the fruit again. And then honey being this reference to Sophia, and wisdom is like honey, so they're, they're taking that. So we replace the body and blood of Jesus Christ with the apple and honey of Gnosticism. It's still around. And if we're not careful, it pops its evil head back up. So Paul trying to tell us, <clears throat> okay, let's go back to the first chapter. We'll pick up with verse 21. Well, I should do 20 to continue. And by him, God reconciled everything to himself. He made peace with everything in heaven and on earth by means of his blood on the cross. So Christ's sacrifice in the form of Jesus is what has brought everything into a right relationship. Whether it be in the heavens... And we think we know what's going on in heaven. They thought they knew, or some thought they knew what was going on in heaven, and it was chaos, and then here on earth. And Paul says, no, there is one key moment, one key event that has transfigured all of this, and it is the blood of Jesus. Every time he says that, I think it grates on their nerves. Paul could have just as easily translated the word blood to spirit. Because that's what Hebrews mean when they say blood. We, of course, get all tied in a knot trying to find our soul in our body, right? Where is your soul in your body? Yeah. Your heart. Yeah, that's, that's very Gnostic. It's where, what we feel. It's our, what we think, maybe. When the Old Testament is very clear, where is the life? Where is the soul? It's in the blood. So as long as your blood flows, as there's movement of the blood, that's where the soul attaches. So that's why they say the blood of Christ, his soul is given for us. But Paul doesn't let him off the hook. Because you think Greeks like the sound that God has blood? God can't have blood. Because blood is physical. It's earthly. It's sinful. Spirit is true. The Gnostics didn't believe Jesus was ever fully human. He was kind of a ghost floating through existence. The blood is Paul, again, trying to root us into these stories of the Old Testament. Nobody likes when the high priest slings the blood on the Ark of the Covenant, and we think, ah, did that stink and smell bad? But it came from a time and place in which that really happened. And can good things come from our bodies? Yeah, absolutely. That God designed good things to come from our bodies? Yes. Now, bad things can happen too. You've got to make a choice, and Paul will, will get on that wagon. But you can't, you can't just say all physical things are bad. So blood, he, it's blood on a cross. This isn't a spiritual crucifixion, okay? It really happened. A man died on that cross. He was also God, but if a human died on that cross, he was a perfect human. Then 21, this includes you who were once so far away from God, you were his enemies, separated from him by your evil thoughts and actions. So what is he telling the Greeks? Yeah, you haven't always rooted for Texas Tech. There was a time that you were rooting for UT. But then Jesus came, and he showed you the way. And now everybody roots for you, Texas Tech, right? But don't pretend like you were always red and black, because you weren't, you orange devil. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. <laughs> but he's reminding them, you were, you were the bad guys. You were the goyim. You're the Gentiles. You're the foreigners. Don't look down on us because you have, quote, built civilization with your Hellenism and all of that. Um, We are not backwards. You were the person outside. Now, we don't like this talk because we've always been Christian. Um, But in a sense, our ancestors were the outsider. It's interesting. God always warns the Jew, remember, you were the foreigner in Egypt. So when you run across a foreigner, treat him differently. Treat him kindly because you know what it's like to be a slave. 
I think the same applies to us. We've been the enemies of God. We've been the bad guys. Maybe we should be so much more graceful to other bad guys, like the Samaritans in Jesus' time, um, because we've been there. But through Jesus, all of us have been invited back. All of us, Jew and Gentile, Greek and Jew, Roman, everybody has been invited back. Now he does two things together. What separated them from God? Your evil thoughts and your actions. And help me watch this closely because Paul is going to continue to match these two things up. He wants the church always to think in these terms. It's not just what you think in your head. It's not what you intend. It's what you actually get done. That is fundamental to the message in the Old Testament. To do a mitzvah, a righteous act for God, is not simply thinking about it or wishing you could. You got to get it done. And whereas Gnosticism is going to kind of retreat and say, eh, your intention is good enough. And some of the Judaizers, the extreme Jewish side is going to say, no, 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 it's just what you do. It doesn't matter. Paul's saying, no, it's actually a little in the middle. It's both. It's what you intend and what you do. Love should motivate action. And one more time, he kicks them in the teeth because it's Paul. Yet now he has brought you back as his friends. He has done this through his death on the cross in his own what? His own body. My translation adds human, which I think is a little loose translation, but it's not a spiritual body that he did this. It is a physical body. So the whole notion that Jesus was 100% human and 100% God. Where does that come from? You're reading it. It'll take several centuries of the church fighting over it, but that's what we came to conclude from Paul's teachings, that he is absolutely a human and he's absolutely a God. Now, I wish Jesus had said, oh, by the way, here's my DNA sample, and I'm 100%, you know, but he's got other stuff to do. All right, do you want to do some more? <laughs> do what now? Yeah. Have you ever known a perfect human? Well, no, but I meant, I've always assumed that Jesus, everybody knew that he was also. And that's why it's so important to get these contexts, because they don't know that for sure in the early church. They're trying their best to figure it out. But he performed several miracles, just like people did in the Old Testament, and they were human. He is resurrected. But there were other people, other false religions that claimed people were resurrected too. So it's not like he was so far out of the experience that anybody had ever seen that they couldn't wonder. And let's be honest, what does 100% human and 100% God really look like? I mean, we say it, and it's, you know, it's sort of the job of the pastors, Orthodox pastors, to teach this through the creeds, the Apostles' Creed. This is where we've worked all this stuff out. But what does that really mean? How many voices did he have in his head? Do we know? Was he a human that God whispered into his brain sometime? Or was he always just God pretending to be a human? Exactly. Which is a very Hebrew answer. <laughs> yeah, there's not two, there's one. Yeah, they're, they're the same. Um, which is how we get what we get. But how does that really work? It what? How does that work? I don't know. <laughs> well, it is why we have faith. But is, this is also why we study to become disciples, to get deeper in our understanding. To understand what's happened before, really, can inform us to 
what we do now. Because the same challenges are still here, right? People want Jesus just to be human, just to be a nice teacher, just to be a philosopher. They say, and I'm sure you've seen it, Jesus was just like Buddha, was just like uh, Muhammad. They all preached love and kindness. That's not true. That's not true by a lot. But it's that context that separates them out. So that's why we've got to dig deep. And this is free. That's why we have two candles on the altar table in the sanctuary. It's true. To remind you of that truth every Sunday. That, God is 100, that Jesus is 100% human and 100% God. That was free. It was, it's not just for good symmetry and balance in the sanctuary. It's uh, to remind you of that. And what are the implications, the lifelong implications that we continue to process and grow into uh, relative to our life with God? Sorry. This is what this is kind of designed to be. Because Jesus said, make disciples. And Steve and I, we discuss this a lot. I have a, a, a pretty strong opinion about that. When Jesus said, make Talmudim, he didn't say make good churchgoers. He didn't say people that come to church once a month. He meant a person that would hold his words so closely that people didn't need to read the Gospels because it would come out of this person's life. Yeah, that's it. So what we try to learn is, yeah, it's not swimming. It's, it's Olympic swimming um, because we do that for God. So one day, Steve and I, you know, we're going to get hit by a meteor. I'm probably going to get struck by lightning. But, uh, <laughs> we're we're going to be gone. And so what there needs to be is people that can tell the story. Now, we have lots of resources, God's holy word. And just because it wasn't maybe intended doesn't mean it's not sacred. It certainly is. And it gives us a huge advantage. But we can't let mis- people misuse it. And we can't forget the story, really where it came from. How much different would we be today if Paul hadn't written this letter? To tell them, no, there really is no such thing as a demiurge, you idiots. Um, So let's do a little more. As a result, he has brought you into the very presence of God. You are a holy and blameless as you stand before him without a single fault. Okay, this is hard to believe right now. Are we in God's presence? Yes. More than we know. We're both here and we're in God's presence. We're holy and blameless. How is that possible? Because of Jesus. Exactly. But we all know we still make mistakes. You're still in a body. How can that be? People can be holy. People can be good. We jump a lot, and we talked about this in Ezekiel, we jump a lot into the holiness bandwagon in the sense that we think it's just a a moral state. But as is presented in the Old Testament, most of it is set apart by God for a special purpose. You may not be better, but you have a, a special assignment. And so being holy is us being assigned to spread the gospel, to spread the news of Jesus. And Paul is trying to tell them, here in this life, right now, you can be holy. You can be blameless. It's not just you're a spirit floating far from this planet, never thinking about earthly things. What is one of the first major expressions of early Christianity? Sounded like a seminary class, your Western Civ course. What is early Christianity known for? For what? Yeah, holy wars. Well, before we started fighting, a little before that, monks and nuns 
What does a monk do? He does what? Yeah, he writes. But what, what is he doing? What is he trying to get away from? People, the world, earthly things, things that weigh us down, material things. Does this sound familiar to you? What do nuns do? I'm never going to marry. I'm never going to have children because it's sinful. It's carnal. It's unnatural. Did God say in the Old Testament that having children was wrong? Exactly. I mean, how many women in the Old Testament pray for children? I mean, it's yeah, basically all of them. I mean, it, it's, it, are we funny? God, give us children. No, I don't want to have children. I mean, it's like, what do I do with you people? So a lot of this Gnosticism still has roots in early Christianity, this rejection of the world. Instead of making the world a better place, we tried to abandon it, to isolate ourselves from it. Um, I don't think, I know Paul does not approve. Um, okay, we're going to go on. I'm trying to give you different eyes here to read what Paul is writing. Um, we've got about one half of the equation here where he's after the Greeks. The other half is going to be against the Jews, the Judaizers that want them to become just full Jews. So he's going to go back and forth. But, but you must continue to believe this truth and stand in it firmly. Don't drift away from the assurance you received when you heard the good news. So remember, we tend to see the good news simply as the gospel stories. But if you've been with us through Ezekiel, you know the full story. The word gospel is simply the Greek word for basora, which came to us from the prophets at the end of the Old Testament. Basora is the day that God calls his people, the Jews, home to Mount Zion. When the world ends, when he comes back. In this calling his Jews back from exile and all over the world, he calls those that would join with them. Remember the Gentiles were included in all sorts of places. Ezekiel said, are you sure? We're supposed to include them. And God said, uh-huh. And you're supposed to give them land and inheritance. They're going to be with you. They're going to become you. And Ezekiel said, are you sure? And God said, uh-huh. So this gospel is God gathering together all those that truly have made covenant, love him, Jew and Gentile, bringing them back. That's what the gospel is. The gospel is not some separate thing with, oh, I'm going to go bring all the Gentiles because I like them more. It's bringing all people, first the Jews and then those that would join with them. Paul says, you were touched when you heard this. When God called to you, he was not your God. He was the God of the Jews, but he still sent his son for you. So don't lose. You know, I like what you say about hold on to your faith. That's the first love, as John would say. Don't, don't lose that. There's going to be a whirlwind. It's going to be a tornado. But you can hold on to your foundation. The good news, the Basora, has been preached all over the world. And I, Paul, have been appointed by God to proclaim it. So he is giving us his apostle status. Does yours not have the word servant in it? Nope. That New Living Translation does. It, it gets loose. Yeah. And then mine does. Yeah. And I actually think that that's it's actually, better. It, it, it's better and it's, it's really important uh, in, the, in the overall context. Um, when you go back up to verse 21, and we promise we're really going to try to get moving on this quicker than this. But when you go up into verse 21 and you start pondering what it means to be an enemy of God in our mind, like ponder the, the original sin of Adam and Eve. Where did that start in Adam and Eve's mind? Basically, it was the snake convinced them to call God's character into question. Right? And that's understandable until you allow your actions to start uh, being in line with that false narrative that's in your head that God is holding out on me. He's not giving me the wisdom and the knowledge fast enough would be the essence of kind of what we see going on in the garden uh, with Adam and Eve. Um, and so 
God's, God's holding out on me. I've got to move quicker. And then the action follows. It becomes uh, evil. Well, what that evil, the, the bad thinking and the evil action did, it kept them from grasping and holding on to their original purpose. Surely, if you've been with us since the fall, you know what humanity's original purpose was, right? God put the man in the garden to do two things. To avad and shamar, to serve and protect. So, let that sink in. That God put us in the garden to be servants. Wow. And... Paul here, he could have just left that off. This is the gospel that you heard and that I had proclaimed to every creature under heaven. He could have stopped right there, but he doesn't. And of which I, Paul, have become a, it's really, it's probably doulos there, a slave. He is like, what he's saying there by, by giving himself that title, he's, he is reclaiming God's original purpose and design for him because his mind through the risen Christ has been cleared. He has become face to face literally when he was on the Damascus road. He became face to face with the risen Lord with the verse 15, the icon, the image of the invisible God. God, this is who you are. And he trusted it. So much so that he's like, I'm all in. I want to be the man that God made me to be, and I'm going to be willing to serve. And remember that that essence of Avad is that you serve, and to serve is to bring forth, what is it? When you rub the wheat together in your hands, life. That's right. We're getting it there, Kurt. We're getting it. You bring forth life, right? In the life that you bring forth for the sake of others, just like with Jesus, is not without suffering. Verse 24. Now I rejoice in what I am suffering. How does anybody rejoice in their suffering? Unless you can see that there is a higher good, a higher life that is being produced as a result of your suffering. Where does Paul celebrate his suffering? Where is his suffering? Yep. Now rejoice in what I am suffering for you, and I feel, feel up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's affliction for the sake of his body, which is the church. For my translation, I'm glad when I suffer for you in my body, for I'm completing what remains of Christ's suffering for his body. Paul's suffering is not just, again, in his head. Right. He's not just worrying. Oh, I worry to death about them. Why is he suffering? Because he's gone out and said a bunch of things that got him beat up. He said a bunch of things that have made him a threat to the Roman state. And they've arrested him. There's been action that he has taken, and there's been a physical reaction to his choices. So again, for the Greeks, this would have been, huh. So he is completing the work of Jesus, helping that work along. Um, th- th- that wording is, is typical kind of Paul, I think. It's, it's, it's a little out there. Because just a couple of verses ago, he said Christ's sacrifice was complete, and now he's saying, "Here, I'm participating in the suffering." So it's it's a little poetic license, I think. But in either case, the spiritual transformation of the world happened in Christ's body here on earth, just as the spiritual transformation for Paul, I think, is happening as he suffers in prison. It's not way up far in the stars in a perfect world where unicorns and everything spiritual is good, it's happening right here. So they carry it one more step. Right. No, you carry it one more step. <laughs> okay. That the, that the transformation of the world then continues through the suffering of who? Oh, yeah. The body of Christ. Right? 
it's like this this idea that to follow Jesus, all of our problems go away. No, it's actually an invitation into things getting worse. Not necessarily for you, but worse for you for the sake of others, right? That there is an element of sacrificial love, sacrificial uh, suffering to point people uh, to the reality of who they are and can be in Christ. So your spirituality really will be worked out probably when you're driving somewhere or when you're in the hospital with someone you love or you're having dinner around the table. It's probably not going to just happen in church. It's probably not just going to happen when everything is perfect and all the stars are aligned. It happens in real life. Yeah. And when things go wrong, we don't need to start acting like the crazy Gnostics and think, I'm being spiritually oppressed. The devil has attacked me. Now, sometimes he does, and there is real temptation. But sometimes we could just be making a choice, and it costs us something, and it hurts, and we suffer like Jesus. We're doing good, and the world doesn't like that. Um, That's the real place, Paul is saying, that our faith is born and, and lived out. So don't forget what he called you to and where we're going. We are going to a spiritual place, a heaven, a land in which the sun does not set. But we're going to get there by making real faithful choices in the real world, here and now. We don't need to be afraid of our bodies. We don't need to be afraid of being human. We just need to find ways to do that in a loving, good, and righteous, as God has defined it, way. It's that simple or it's that hard. Any questions? I promise the Gnosticism stuff will get easier. Yes, ma'am. So what I'm getting is like Gnosticism is almost like Greek paganism, but with the name change it because like they're on a new terrain, they need they use what you know to understand. Um so then my question that is the the Christianity that ended up sucker punching that out of the way. What school of thought is that? Is this a confusion of different cultures or is this just a whole brand new thing? No, it ends up being a fusion. It really is. I mean you think about just the terms that we use today, how many Latin terms we're using, how many Greek terms, but I think it's a healthier balance. So I I don't want to ever just dismiss all Greek philosophy and say all of it was bad, because it wasn't. The church used a lot to try to figure it out, but it just, it set boundaries to it. And every group that converts to Christianity goes through this. They want to take their culture and shove it through, and you kind of just have to balance it out. And, and you'll see this really beautifully in chapter 2 when Paul goes after both uh, people who are sold out to the more Jewish perspective on living and being in the world. And then he turns right around and says, nope, and also these Greeks at the same time. It's like the excesses that he is trying to expose and uh, does a really good job. We'll see it in the coming weeks. And so it may feel like it's a modern trend where people say Christians are uneducated. Christians have backwards ideas. Christians are just mean. They want to tell people how to live their lives. We've been accused of that since the very beginning. They thought our God was a poor desert God that had no business telling enlightened Hellenistic thinkers what to believe. And yet today, you know, who's, who's on top? So... Uh, we'll, we'll weather these storms, but our secret, Luther said it, Martin Luther, uh, the great German reformer, he called it the, uh, the Protestant University. And it was mothers teaching the Bible, the real Bible to their kids. To me, it's what Jesus intended with disciples. Real disciples for Jesus Christ always change things. And so that's what we should be making. So the more we get the truth out there, the more we get the story, we have the love, the compassion, the righteousness, we'll do what we've always done and spread the light. Other questions? Right? Let's pray. Father, our God... 
Thank you for showing us the skeletons in the closet tonight. Sometimes it's easier just to pretend they were never there or be blissfully ignorant of them. But we know faith has always been a struggle. It's never been easy. It's always involved us staring down two roads and deciding to take the one that you have set before us, even if it will cost us, even if it will confuse us. Help us tonight to learn to take that road. Lord God, as we have learned of the faithfulness of the previous generations to not get lost in culture, get lost in esoteric things, may we find the same strength in our society today. For Lord, we know your gospel grows at a fast rate around our world, the fastest we've ever seen. But it does not do so in our country. And Father, we fear that your spirit might have moved beyond, that we might have wasted the land of blessing that you've given us. Help us, those that are the embers, the still burning light, to take this as a call from you to stand up and to make sure that our kids and our grandkids and their friends and their friends have an invitation to church. It was easier when we were younger, O oh Lord, and all went to church. But Father, we know now that most don't. And worse yet, they have a quick, easy response they learn from Facebook about what's wrong with the church. Help us, O oh Lord, to be prepared, as your word has said, to have an answer for every objection. May we be such disciple that no word is necessary. Our actions that we take in service and of being a servant to our Lord will be the love and the teaching that they need. Help us to take back. In your son's holy and precious name we pray. Amen.